Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Welcome y'all to another episode of Small Doses. I am very honored to be joined by two smarty pants uh, women today who are many things and wear many hats on the on the basics of their introductions. We have Miss Cedra Sebastian, the fund manager for Grant Makers for Girls of Color. And we have Dr. Monique Morris, uh, the president and CEO of Grant Makers for Girls of Color. Now, some of y'all are like, what does all that mean? And that is what we were going to talk about. That's what we are going to talk about on today's episode. Uh, you know, we've been doing this series on educators, and I wanted to bring in some folks that have been in the education space that are in the traditional way, but also folks that are working to support the education space, because as we know, it doesn't just happen at school. There's a whole village that has to work in tandem to create spaces for our children to learn in, in a in a uh, enlightening and a actual effortful way because the, the, a lot of people feel like the schools ain't doing shit. Then we have the specificity of black girls and the unique experiences that black girls are having in education spaces, positive and negative, and the unique necessities that black girls have. And what these two women are doing um, is very specifically tailored to increasing the growth and the enlightenment and empowerment of our young black girls in a very, in a myriad of ways that we will discuss here today. Now, first of all, let me just ask, what drew you all, aside from having, you know, at one point in time being black girls, what drew you all to this work and this very specific necessity of like identifying that black girls have a... What's the words I'm looking for? That black girls have a, they deserve. Like black girls deserve and they're not getting. Like what what drew you all to being in this space and setting the course to get black girls what they deserve? Yeah, I'll start. Um, so Grant Makers for Girls of Color is the nation's only philanthropic intermediary that exclusively resources and funds organizations and movements that center girls and femmes of color um, and black girls in particular, but we have we have four funds that look overall at at girls of color, girls, femmes, and gender expansive youth of color. And uh, as we you know we're embarking upon the creation of these funds, our Black Girl Freedom Fund, which Cedra leads, but our other funds, it was really clear that we needed to have an explicit conversation about black girls that is rooted in an understanding of the unique nature of growing up a black girl as a black girl in this country. Um, obviously, I was once a black girl. I'm a mother to two black girls. I have black girls in my life, right? And, and also, right. as a researcher, I was very clear that abundant engagement and investment in Black girls was not happening, right? We see Black girls overrepresented across the spectrum of uh, conditions of harm. We see Black girls being tragically underfunded. We see Black girls, you know, negotiating um, the conditions in their lives and still emerging in this space of creativity and leadership 
um, despite what is happening in their lives, not because of what is happening in their lives. And so when 2020 hit and everybody was talking about the need to invest in a robust racial justice uh, analysis, but also movement area, you know, it was clear to me and it was clear to others that were working with me that unless we specifically named Black girls as as a collective group that required our investment, we were just going to continue to see an underinvestment in that space, right? So the data had come out that in 2018, only 15 million out of almost $428 billion in philanthropic giving reached Black women and girls. Only 15 out of 428, 15 million out of 428 billion. That, I mean, I don't think I can even wrap my head around those numbers. (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, in philanthropic giving that reached Black women and girls. And so when we saw that So both Black women and girls girls, were lumped into that number. Exactly. Okay. And so, you know, obviously there was no disaggregation around how much was just reaching girls, but we all know the things that people celebrate about Black womanhood, that people appreciate about Black women, emerge when they're girls. And they do this... And, and they, we, we emerge into these beings, um, you know, under the worst conditions. And so we wanted to shift the narrative, right? We wanted to say, look, what happens if we understand that this is a ridiculous, woeful underinvestment? It's insulting. It's, you know, it, it shouldn't even be, right, <laughs> in, in, in our thinking about what we get and what we, what we receive from Black women and girls versus what we're putting into Black women and girls. But we were also like, let's, let's flip it a little bit. Like, what happens in 10 years if we move into a space where we intentionally, robustly invest in Black girls, right? What could we, as a community, as a society, and also just, you know, Black girls, because I always say, you know, Black girls are worthy of investment and our time, right. um, just in and of, you know, the, but just by, you know, by mere fact of their existence, um, you know, what, 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 do, what do we get? Who do they become? How do, how do they, you know, emerge as, you know, healthy, whole adults in that space? And so we launched the Black Girl Freedom Fund as a way to intentionally mobilize around that concept. What happens if we move a billion dollars, one billion, so 428 billion of philanthropic giving, right? What happens if we just move one billion to reach Black girls, right? And femmes and gender expansive youth. How can we move the resources to you know invest in their well-being and so that made it you know really clear for us and our partners around the creation of the black girl freedom fund but also the 1 billion for black girls larger campaign that includes um, the other investments that are made in philanthropy that are reaching black girls femmes and gender expansive youth um, you know to help us move not just uh, the money but certainly the money uh, not just the money, but also the thinking about who Black girls are and what they need in our society. It, it combats the erasure that we see um, impacting Black girls, and it allows for us to deal with a lot of the sort of underlying issues that facilitate that erasure, the adultification, the criminalization, the you know ways that, um, you know, this, the sexual violence <laughs> and, and a lot of the other ways that Black girls um, bodies and, um, you know, experiences inform who they ultimately become. Yeah. Cedra, I'm going yeah, to turn it over I to mean, you. I'm going to jump in here because yes, definitely the dollars and the narrative shift, right? It's so important for us to think about the ways in which Black girls, femmes, and gender expensive youth have been excluded from spaces to tell their own stories. 
we don't get an opportunity to hear from Black girls, femmes, and gender expensive mm. youth in the ways that we should. And so a big part of the campaign is also carving out spaces where we are giving them the light, where we're shining the light on them, we're giving them the microphone, and we're letting them tell their stories, and that being a part of the narrative shift. Because that's going to shift their experiences throughout childhood, adolescence, into adulthood, right? When we change the narrative, a teacher who walks into a classroom and sees a Black girl is going to do something different because that narrative has shifted. When that young person goes into a clinic to get a checkup, to get reproductive health right. services, they're going to get a different response because the narrative has shifted about who Black girls, femmes, and gender expansive young people are in this country. And so the dollars, all the dollars, all the money, <laughs> and we have to change the narrative and we have to do that work alongside Black girls and gender expansive youth, right? So often young people are talked about and talked to but we don't necessarily give them the mic. And if we do, there's an even smaller group of adults who will do what they say to do, right? And that's a big part of the work too. So what, what were y'all doing before this? <laughs> what were we like, doing before it, this? Yeah, because like, it wasn't like you went to college and got out of college and were like, you know what? We oh, it definitely do. wasn't that. Take me it, was on the little, it was a little bit of that for me. <laughs> Take me on the journey. Uh, my journey really starts when I was a young person. I started teaching when I was 15 years old. How? And I started teaching through what is now the Breakthrough Collaborative. It was called Summerbridge. And it was a program that would entrust the, teach, the teaching during the summer um, of middle school students um, by high school and college level students. And we would take over the. Just out geeked me. Like, (laughs) you went to summer school to teach school. Like, I went to summer school to teach school. And Uh, I was in high school and college teaching middle school students, launched the program. I was part of the original program in San Francisco, launched the program in New Orleans. And uh, in, in teaching and in my own advocacy, you know, I understood the value of ensuring that young people had a voice. But I was also very clear because I'm an early survivor of sexual violence, that part of my work in teaching was to also create space for there to be some conversations about the well-being of our girls and our young people who were survivors like me. And so as we started to, you know, as I started to grow in my scholarship, I also started to grow in my advocacy. Mm-hmm. And so coming out, um, I started, you know, I worked in schools um, and then came out of that to do more research around juvenile justice work. Um, but my early orientation toward education, you know, really led me to be in detention facilities with young people, asking them and talking to them about their educational journeys and recognizing that so many young people were not only in these facilities because they had bad, you know, a poor quality of education or lack of access to educational resources, but that, you know, we just didn't really understand how to engage young people in their learning um, if they were also survivors of multiple forms of oppression and conditions of harm. And so uh, the schools and detention facilities were often very, very poor. Um, You know, the young people in there were like, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I talked about this a lot. You know, I, I wrote Push Out, around the criminalization of black girls in schools. And one of the early interviews that I did for that um, project 
was me, you know, sort of, I, I, well, before I wrote Push Out, I wrote the street novel called Me and Jesus the Pimp in a set. Well, I, I wrote, a, a, wait, 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 I wrote a street novel uh, called Too Beautiful for Words that was based on a song by the coup called Me and Jesus the Pimp in a 79 Granada last night. And so it was, you know, a critique of a whole lot of First things. First of all, I'm just impressed <laughs> that you write songs based on the coup. <laughs> so, right? So, like, do people know about the coup? Exactly. And so, and so it was um, really, you know, um, it was a project that allowed me to talk to people who are typically left out of, you know, some of the more rigorous discourses about criminalization. It was an opportunity for me to connect with young people. It was also an opportunity to engage the mind of Boots Riley, around some of these concepts of, of uh, capitalism and how we, you know, sort of process um, this notion of exploitation um, mm-hmm. in, our, in our communities. And so what was a beautiful, you know, opportunity, I think, to talk about, um, you know, those kinds of things was also an opportunity for me to go back into facilities and talk to young people about these issues, especially given that in the Bay Area at this time, um, you know, there was um, a particular trafficking of young black girls. Um, you know, over 80 percent of the girls who were sex trafficked were black girls. And people didn't oh, wow. talk about that. They weren't really the face of trafficking. This is people. like time frame, mm-hmm. like 90s. This is, yeah, this is 1999, 1998. Okay. And, uh, you know, folks were not really talking about it. People were still using the framework around child prostitute. Right. Not recognizing that there's no such thing. Right. Survivors have given us frameworks, understanding that children are commercially sexually exploited, not child prostitutes. Um, So this was an opportunity to talk about a lot of those things um, in a real way. And I entered the facility and there was a girl who was 11 years old and she called herself a hoe in talking to me. And it just kind of blew my mind because I was like, this girl is 11 years old. And she stood up and she said, I'm a hoe. That's what I do. Oh, and I was like, what? Right. So every part of me was shook. I'm still shook. Even when I tell this story. Right. I'm I was right. like, how does an 11 year old refer to herself as a hoe? First of all. Secondly, how did this society fail her to the extent yeah. that she is in this lockdown facility talking about her trauma as if it's a profession? And, mm. you know, I was like, this is wild. I was like, you should be in school. This is crazy, right? And I'm talking to you in a classroom, quote unquote. I'm using air quotes for people, right? I'm talking to you in a classroom in a detention facility. And this is what we're doing? Like, like this is where we're going with this, right? So um, in a lot of ways, you know, my, you know, my engagement with this question of how we respond to Black girls is obviously rooted in my own experiences um, both as a survivor of conditions of harm, but also as a facilitator, I think, of healing, but also the scholarship that I was then able to produce to make sure that we right. were still able to center girls when so much did not. You know, when I was writing in 1997, like the time of, that I was writing between 1997 and 2004, I would say, there was just such a large gap in the research that centered Black girls between the ages of 12 and 17 that almost anything I wrote was like new information, right? Even though we had a couple of pioneers who were writing sociological studies and moving a lot of the critique, there just wasn't a lot in the the academic sphere that allowed for us to really engage in what these experiences were. And I wanted to change that, right? I wanted to encourage our communities to do more. I wanted us to really begin to deepen our understanding so that by the time I move out of, 
you know, running the National Black Women's Justice Institute, which I founded before I came over to Grantmakers for Girls of Color, um, that we were able to really not just produce scholarship, but now that we are in philanthropy, we're also able to fund resources to remedy these conditions. And Can so, you just really quickly explain what philanthropy is? Because I think a lot of folks don't actually, I know when you explained it to me, I was like, oh, I thought I knew what that was. And I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what that was. <laughs> yeah, philanthropy is a nonprofit space that facilitates the movement of money to invest in delivering grant funds. So money you don't have to pay back, right? Grant funds to organizations and movements, sometimes individuals that are doing work in the public good. And so, um, or at least that's what we're focused on is the public good, right? The public good is always subject to interpretation Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of philanthropic dollars- I feel like I should be able to get a grant for Smart, Funny, and Black. I just feel like I should be able to get a grant for that. (laughs) It's the public good. Public good. And so, you know, what what we do is we make investments, um, we write grants. um, That's the fund that CEDRA runs is our Black Girl Freedom Fund, which is Grantmakers for Girls of Color's largest fund um, that does support. uh, I'll let CEDRA give you the stats on how many young people's organizations we're supporting, but we're supporting across the country, across the spectrum of interests. And we move dollars, we move the dollars, but we're Mm -hmm. also um, hopefully moving the consciousness around the mobilization of other dollars that we don't necessarily control. Cedra, I'll turn it over to you just to give a snapshot. So like when y'all talked about how there were $15 million that were uh, allocated for just black women and black girls, but there was 400 some odd billion dollars. The philanthropy work that you all are doing is looking at that billion and being the bridge between the billions to increasing the millions that are specifically allocated towards Black girls. You that got is it. correct. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And in, in um, the Black Girl Freedom Fund, a, a core part of our work is working directly with Black girls and gender expansive youth to be a part of our grant making process. So when you ask for the definition of philanthropy, I immediately went back to a conversation with a young person who was like, you know, when I hear that word, I monopoly dude, the white old guy (laughs) with the top hat on, like, I just never saw myself as a philanthropist. But Mm. through that process, they were like, oh, I am a philanthropist. Like, I get it. I get to do this work, right? And so we work with young people to talk with them about the history of philanthropy in the United States how grant makers for girls of color does philanthropy that is different from that and what the intentions around that are, and then arm them with the tools to go through a process to make decisions about who we release monies to. Um, So through our second cycle of giving, we released a little over $4 million to 68 organizations representing 23 states, DC and Puerto Rico. And that work was all done by Black girls and gender expansive youth. And so we spent about two and a half months going through over 200 applications that came in and narrowed it down to those 68 organizations. And you narrowed it down speaking with these girls. That's what I think a lot of people oh, don't yes. understand. Like, they're not just there, like, taking classes. No, they're there oh, saying, no. like, they're doing we think the they work. should get the money. We Listen. don't know about them. And ask all <laughs> kinds of questions that I didn't even have on my list, you know? So the framework changed because of questions that they were asking me. The timing changed of when <laughs> we were meeting because of what worked for their <laughs> schedule. So I was working on Saturdays. <laughs> So, but listen, you know, we, I, 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 I saw because y'all suggested Saturdays for us to work with, right. <laughs> with Green Maker, and I was like, 
Saturday. <laughs> and I, they were like Saturday. <laughs> Jeremiah was like, I can't, I can't do Saturday. We got the five is a, a, a weekday, six o'clock. Right. right. But I, I really feel like this is a whole other type of education, though. Exactly. That is so necessary and that even and that is also just kind of hidden. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I think this is a part of financial literacy in the sense that there is a stream of money that is moving through this country mm-hmm. that so many of us don't know we have access to or should have access to right. or can have access to. And even by just bringing these um young people together in this space, it's just inviting them into a whole other level of awareness of how capitalism exists in this country and how it can be tapped into for actual ethical purposes, even though capitalism is trash. Yeah, but (laughs) that and the direct impact in their everyday lives, right? So we were talking about moving millions of dollars, right? But what does it mean for a young person, a Black girl, a Black gender non-conforming young person to have access to $1,000? If they were given $1,000, how does that shift their life? What is their connection to that money? How do their family members now respond to them? Oh, you giving out billions of dollars? Okay. You know, there's a lot of work that we had to do with too Mm. about their relationship with money. And that was Mm. also an education. Healing, for sure. But that was also an education. What is our relationship with money? And I think broadly speaking, in the Black community, other communities Mm -hmm. of color, indigenous Mm -hmm. communities in this country. Immigrant communities. There's a lot. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of trauma that's connected to our relationship with money, especially if you're coming from a community that understands all the levels, that understands that, yes, capitalism ain't shit, and we operate within it all the time. The fact that I can talk to you very clearly on this, (laughs) I have access that is allowing me to have a ton of options to participate in this conversation. I participate in capitalism every day. So how is it that I can do that in a way that allows me to also, you know, um, be as informed as possible about how I can undo some of the harm that happens daily, but also on a larger scale operating within that system, right? And so coming back to philanthropy, how is it that we're creating a space for these Black girls and gender expensive youth to not only build the skills to vet a docket of organizations Mm. that comes before them, but to also define what priorities mean for them. How are they defining wellness and safety? How are they defining how organizations are centering the leadership of Black girls and gender expansive youth? And how are we then using those definitions to do the work? Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit to just speaking directly to the unique experience of Black girls in education spaces, right? And the work that both of you all have done in identifying that Black girls have different needs, right? And and even just the conversations have, that you're having with these Black girls about their needs, because part of the part of this podcast is also, you know, you guys have spoken quite a bit thus far about like the need to change the narrative. So let's start here right now. 
Um, like I was watching this speech that uh, the great educator, Dr. Barbara Sizemore had given where she was talking about, she's like, you know, black people don't get it. Black people don't get it. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. She was saying it just like that. And, but she was like, you know, our kids are going into schools and there's, they're not being given what they need as black children to come and live in this society that is going to treat them different. And so we are continuously telling them to stand in line and to wait your turn and to be polite, et cetera. But in this capitalist society, standing in line, waiting your turn and being polite really doesn't get you anywhere. And so I'm curious to like what you guys think about how that shows up uniquely with black girls, because we already are facing the angry black woman, uh, you know, stigma at the, as you transition out of black girlhood. Yeah, I would say, you know, many of the policies and practices that we see in schools are rooted in the tropes and stereotypes about people's lack of understanding um, about Black girlhood, what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, as Cedra was saying, how it uh, manifests given who's articulating, you know, what, what it's supposed to be. Um, and I think, you know, as a result, what we see is that Black girls have been and continue to be overrepresented across the spectrum of discipline at every educational level. We still see a lot of the um, learning loss impacting Black girls. Black girls are negotiating poverty in schools and attending schools that have high poverty rates that impact their access to resources. Um, they are living with uh, you know, understandings about who they are that lead them to experience violence in schools, sometimes at the hands of um, law enforcement in schools or other mm -hmm. adults that are trusted with authority in schools. And so, you know, yes, Black children are learning, Black girls and femmes and gender expansive youth in particular are experiencing, you know, sort of this um, experience in their learning spaces that often tells them that they don't belong, that, um, you know, they don't show up in the curriculum in the way that they should. Right. Uh, much of the curriculum isn't designed with them in mind, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the talking points that that we've seen over the years. Um, what has been emergent, you know, I guess throughout the trajectory of, you know, our modern conversations about education um, is uh, an attempt for us to claim educational spaces as locations for there to be a, a reimagination of education as a tool for freedom. Right? Locations so as a location for reimagination <laughs> of education. I didn't I didn't I didn't deliver that right. <laughs> I was like, oh she's gonna keep going. Um and, and so you know it's that's our work. Our work is to then say the people who are holding on to that radical imagination to help us understand what's possible are these young people. Mm -hmm. Right. The the young people are the ones right. who are standing in the gap that adults yes. should be standing in. Right. But there's the young people standing in that gap to say, you know, hold up. You got to see me. You have to understand what these conditions are. I need my school to not focus so much on whether my spaghetti straps are a bother to, you know, somebody or my skirt is a little too high and to really focus on the fact that I'm here to learn, right? That yeah. I came to school today. I need people, you know, the young people are protesting saying, I need you not to tell me I can't wear extensions in my hair or my Afro or my locks because you consider that to be a distraction to some other student. I need to be able to be my full self and to not have to 
you know, sort of modify what comes out of my head naturally to suit right. your interests. Um, and and also young people are leading the critique. You know, a lot of people have been having these weird conversations, misguided conversations about critical race theory in schools and whether folks, which, you know, so just for clarity, schools are not teaching critical race critical theory. Race theory. <laughs> I was like, I, I have to say that. Man. It's maddening. <laughs> it's, 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 but it's, it's also like, it's infuriating how, <laughs> how the like, people I know that are smart people are not even like catching. I'm like, they made this shit up. Like critical race theory is a college level legal course. It's a legal teaching, framework. <laughs> teaching African, teaching the history of America, which right. includes racism as a construct that was implemented for the building of institutions and, and the entire country. That's okay. not a theory. It's not. <laughs> it's not even, it's not a course. It's not theory. No. It's just the fact. It is, it is literally, I see people trying to debate it and I'm like, (laughs) right. I'm like, stop debating something that doesn't exist. I agree. I agree. But it's also young people who are elevating the importance of ensuring that they show up in the curriculum. Right. Right. Like while there's this weird debate happening about something that Mm -hmm. doesn't exist, there are young people who are saying, you know, my curriculum doesn't reflect the lived experiences of my community. You are not talking about real conditions in my community in a way that is useful to me. And they don't know. Don't I mean, show or don't care about what's going on in the hood. I mean, some, some quotes are timeless, right? I some mean, but that's timeless. really what it, I ended up becoming an African-American studies major because I got to school and took a class and was like, hello. Right. Know about all of this. And that's yeah. all I cared about learning about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After that, I was like, if I'm, I was like, I'm going to quit school if I'm not going to just learn about this. I get like, you. I was, I was African-American studies, political science, double major. And people were like, you can't do that. And I was like, yes, I'm going to do that because one what is for my soul. What did you go to, Monique? Columbia University in the Which, city by the of way, is wilding right now. I did know. you see um... that? <laughs> yes. Because, of course, you know, everyone's sending it to but, me. But like, you went actually, to Columbia. But, but here's what I actually claim. The Institute for Research in African-American yes, Studies founded it. by Dr. <laughs> Manning Marable. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and where yes. I launched a lot of my scholarship in this space. So that's what I actually claim. <laughs> I was like, I was in one building. I was in Skirmish right? I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know that campus like that. I was in one building. I know it. I know it. I know it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you but know. The kids, the, so, the, so when yeah. you all work with the children, with the young ladies, with the young non-binary individuals, with the femmes, what are they saying is like, what are some bottom lines that they're like, I don't like that. Or I like that. Cause I know it's that clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is that clear. I think a lot of the things that I've heard recently has been around language. So like, mm. I think you would have gotten some raised eyebrows with the young ladies. Cause they're kind of oh like, nah, <laughs> so <laughs> I think a lot of it is around language. I What's think, wrong with young ladies? Because yeah, lady nah. is a patriarchal construct. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a whole no. <laughs> yeah. No, but I want to know why now. I, I think a lot of it is around um, their ability to recognize how limiting certain words and definitions are. And they're like, Full self determination to name themselves for themselves. Well, how are they naming they, themselves? 
it's fluid, which is so interesting and ever-changing. And I, I think in this particular cycle with young people, that is the biggest lesson that I learned. Like I need to ask on a regular like I just I just need to ask. What is know? it today? This is what I'm saying. Those are the types of questions. And I might not say what is it. Like if but I'm a young person in your class, to, mm-hmm. what am I wanting to be referred to right now? Is young woman not it? Is young lady not it? Is I would young- ask you. I would be like, hey, Amanda, what's good today? How you doing? Let me know if there's anything that, you know, I, you can still address me as Cedra and this way and CC and hey girl and fun manager, like whatever you want. Is there anything that changed? Should I, you know, address you in a different way? Is it still cool to call you blah, blah, blah? Let me know. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, and also young people will tell you. And so that's what I said about the eyebrows, right? Like maybe it's not a no Sudra, but it's the, it's the side eye. It's the eyebrow raise. It's the, you know, (laughs) it's all of those body language cues that let you know that something's funky you need to check in with where the funk is coming from um, and move from there. Okay. And obviously that's not everybody, right? So, right, so, that's, so that's the whole point is like, I love Cedra's point around our need to ask. Like, yeah. like there are so many assumptions that have been made about how people are moving. And this next generation is really intent upon making sure that they have the agency to identify themselves. You know, this notion of identity is, is really strong um among young folks and i think that they also have been deeply politicized you know yeah. by an existence that has been rooted in harm associated with misidentification and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they they're watching this and they're like it's a it's a protective factor for them uh you know to be able to understand that they can claim who they are and help adults understand how to shape themselves to be responsive to what they need. Um, I think a lot of, you know, our work with young people, I think at G4GC, but also um, just in the community is really about um, working with and alongside young people to help elevate the issues that they think are important and to help, um, you know, us frame some of these issues that we thought we had an understanding about in new ways that challenge some See, of the that's what that I want to know. I want to know some of these things that you like, all thought you knew that they've been like put that that made you be like, oh yeah. That, uh, okay. I did not know that, Lashana. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well one of the things that I have um observed and, and learned um just over the course of a couple of years of having conversations with young people who have experienced deep structural harms. So people who have been arrested, people who have been in contact with the juvenile court, people who have been commercially sexually exploited, like folks who have been dealing with a lot of society's harms, is just how much their brains have been conditioned to think that surveillance is a normal way to be, Mm. right? And so when we talk to young people about surveillance, right, they, they, they don't really blink um, when they talk about people who are watching them or, you know, people in their classrooms who are observing. When we talk about um, surveillance, what do we mean? Like, what I mean, because when like, I think of surveillance, I think of like CCTV. What, when you that, say surveillance, what do when you I mean? say surveillance, I mean, like people with authority, like police in schools or security guards or other. They just think that's normal. They just think that's normal. 
Um, and when you talk to them about, you know, what other schools might look like or mm-hmm. what other communities might look like, and they understand that like not everybody has a patrol car running up and down their block. Not right. everybody has to walk through schools with metal detectors. Not everybody is scanned, yeah. you know, has to go through a full body scan before they can, you know, enter a building. Like yeah. not everybody has to go through this and not everybody is having the kinds of conversations and relationships with other people in authority, the way that so many of them are conditioned to think is normal. Um, you know, you start to recognize just how much this generation has grown up with a certain priming around being watched, around, you know, being engaged. Um, and so, you know, at, at mm. once we, you know, once we talk, I've, I've written a little bit about it because I was like, when I first recognized that, like, they weren't flinching when when people would walk in the room, like certain bodies would walk in the room and people who know that that's not normal will turn around and look and be like, what are they doing here? Like, who's that? Right. And, you know, even to the point where, you know, it might be like, whose mama is that? Right. Or who's whose person is that? A, an, an adult coming in to observe and watch does not phase them because they've now been conditioned to be watched. Right. And I was like, this is really interesting to me. And when you talk to young people about it, they're like, well, you know, this, this is what we've been told mm-hmm. about this scenario. But I also feel like this is not what should be right. Like, I feel like there should be, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily need somebody watching me as much as I need to talk to somebody about the things that I'm going through in life. Right. Like, right. I'm, I, I, I don't need somebody coming in to threaten me. What I need for safety is for this person to stop touching on my body. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> like I need there to be like their condition, for us to talk about the real things, not mm-hmm. the things that make society feel better. And right. so um, w- what I have learned from young people with that is how much we need to examine our own practices around priming young people for certain conditions of harm and also how they then take that in and offer us, if you're listening, you know, some real perspectives around what they actually need. It's like, you know, you know, like in the example of all of the surveillance that they might think is natural and normal, that doesn't mean that they like it, they're accepting it, but they're also very clear that there are some alternative things that could be happening. We have young people who are involved in dancing and mobilization efforts as their healing strategies. We have young people who are starting their own podcasts and businesses to talk mm-hmm. about conditions in their communities that are not relying on others to tell them who they are and what they should be doing. And these young people are looking for investments. These young people are trying to connect with us. Their parents are really thrilled that we exist, right? Right. <laughs> can have a way to connect with a, an outside world that tells them yeah. that there's a different possibility. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the miracle, right? That's part of how we shift the consciousness around this issue. But it's also how we start to move the resources to better align with the development of consciousness in some of these, um, in some of these areas. So Cedra, what would you say is like the best takeaway that these young women, that these young people, um, what would you say is the takeaway that they express to you guys after working with you guys? I'm probably not allowed to say guys neither. What is... (laughs) I follow. I follow. (laughs) And so I think there would be a few things. I think one big thing would be the trust factor, you know, there wasn't a moment where it was like, 
but are you sure? Because you left out this one and I think they're really good. So maybe you should look it over again. It was like, okay, Mm. you did the work. Got it. Next. And so I think the trust level really helped them take the work to another level because they were clear, like, oh, they trust us to make decisions. Right. You know? So I think that was a big takeaway for them. I think another big takeaway is, you know, having that space to really talk through their relationships with money. And so we work with this really dope Black woman psychologist who does a lot of work with Black young people um, who did workshops around power analysis, their own personal voice, and helping them to unpack their relationships with money that was really amazing for them and wasn't an experience that any of them had had before. And so I think to be in a space where people were expecting them to do work and we're also creating a space for them to find healing in different ways was also right. something unique that they hadn't experienced before. Um, and I would say the last thing, I think a lot of them really have fun. <laughs> I think they really have fun. There's, you know, crews of them that still connect and check in with each other in different ways. And I just think it was a really good time. And even though it was on Saturdays, like it was weekend time well spent, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it was an opportunity for them to connect with other young people, to make friends, to talk about like crazy stuff that was happening in the world. Like when we had our first cohort, um, There was this unfortunate series of incidents that were happening across the East Coast, literally from New York to Florida, of Black girls and gender expansive youth being physically harmed by either police or police in schools. Mm. That was the second Saturday we were meeting together that all of this stuff kind of hit the fan. This was February uh, 2021. Okay. And that's like, Friday night, I'm like, I need to be ready for us to not do the agenda that I have. Oh, okay. Because I'm clear there's no way that they're going to be like, yep, let's jump in knowing what these last five, six days have been. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, Saturday, everybody's on time. And my check-in question is like, what y'all want to do today? Mm -hmm. Because I'm clear that this whole week has been a mess. You have seen all the things that have happened in New York and Florida, all the harm that has happened to Black girls, all the ways that people have talked about how it was their fault if they just didn't talk back, if they just followed directions. But very few people, adults included, Black folk adults included, who did not have those young people's back. Right. How do y'all want to do Saturday? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, and so we spent a chunk of that afternoon just talking about the week. You know, there was one young person who didn't know what we were talking about. And so the other young people filled them in and they were like, oh, snap, I need a moment and got on their phone and started like searching through articles and stuff. And, you know, there were folks who had been talking about it with folks in their community all week long, um, whether it was like doing press or doing informal things with places that they worship in or just talking with family members about it. But that's how we spent the first chunk of that Saturday, just giving space for them to talk through what they were feeling, what they were experiencing, um, and then slowly moved into the agenda for the day. And I think too often 
we don't create that space, even in our adult lives, to go slower when we need right. to. And I think especially folks who identify as folks of color and indigenous people, especially black folks, that like push through theme can get you, but so yes. far. And I'm so grateful that these young people that I've been able to work with were not on some push through that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. because yeah. it could have been easy to get through those two hours and do what was on schedule and keep us on track. Um, and it was just as easy to say, how are y'all doing? Right. What, what space can I create so we can just go at a slower pace so people can check in about whatever they want to check in in. And that's important. So that's the, also the thing people need to learn, right? Like we always talk about the things that are not being provided in some of our spaces with young people that are related mm-hmm. to put, fighting through or not standing in line and not, you know, sort of waiting your turn. But right. the other thing we need to learn is grace. And what we are learning from our young people is a reclamation of joy, mm-hmm. right? And so it's... Um, some folks like you, Amanda, never left that space of joy, right? And finding <laughs> joy in the thing. But a lot of us lose it. A lot of us lose it. And um, that bitterness will also eat at us. And it is also a tool of white supremacy. And so Absolutely. we have to understand that viscerally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Mm-hmm. Like we have to understand that. And so Cedra modeling that you can engage in a practice of grace under these conditions right. is also a lesson. It's a lifelong lesson, you know, that that we hope people are picking up. We hope the listeners to this, you know, sort of re- take a minute, like reflect, right? Yeah. <laughs> take, take a minute. It's okay to have a minute. Well, you know, that's so much of the work, right? It's just saying like, it's okay to feel this and then, you know, and feel it for real but not let it consume you. Cause I think that's the nuance. It's like, um, it's the nuance between pushing through and, um, how do I put it? I feel like, I feel like sometimes there's a narrative that says like, you need to feel everything at all times. And I feel like that's also its own dance with young folks. Right. It's yeah, like, okay. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that this doesn't need to be dealt with. I just don't know that this is like the right time to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And so then as we are adults and we grow up, like, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like learning the nuance between controlling your feelings and having control of your feelings. Right. Like yeah. I think in some place, in some cases, it's like you're being told, like, control your feelings is actually synonymous with don't have feelings. Like, right. don't feel no about this. Don't express yourself. Don't have any opinion on this. And it's like, no, but having control of my feelings means I know how I want to express this feeling in a way that is going to be healthy for me. That's also going to be like advantageous for me. I mean, We've been talking to a number of different educators and just hearing the way that they're speaking to young people about just this particular thing, about just feelings and how that is a level of intelligence that's having to show up in every educator's space. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and it's like as someone who like has a staff, you know, I got to deal with like everybody's feelings, Mm -hmm. right? Like and like there's times where I have to be like, damn, we need to get this shit done. But she's crying. So <laughs> what's wrong? 
like I can't, you know, like we have to like, no, I, don't, I don't want to talk. I don't need to talk about it right now. Yes, you do. Cause you're crying. Like what, what monster would I be if I was like, fuck your tears. I need that spreadsheet. Yeah. Yeah. I need the PTS reports. Yeah. Um, but I know that that's also because like, I feel like I grew up. Did my mom really encourage my feelings? I feel like I was always around. I was always in spaces where even if people didn't encourage my feelings, like they was going to get these feelings. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, and once they were delivered, I feel like I was supported and articulating like, okay, you feel some type of way. Like there was people listening. And I think it's really dope to hear that you guys like incorporate that into the work you're doing with these young people. Because I think from what I'm understanding, like it really that's also a part of a revolution that's happening amongst educators, just the importance of understanding the text and understanding your emotions and also how the text invokes emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I mean, I, I've, I, I feel like that's something that unique for black girls it is very unique for black girls. When we see all these people talking about like white kids are going to feel some type of way if they find out that they're the descendants of races, it's like, well, how do you feel black? children feel when they find out that they're the descendants of folks who were <laughs> enslaved by these people's people. Like what, <laughs> what feelings is that supposed to invoke? I'm supposed to just chalk that charge that to the game. So yeah. I have issues with that. But my last question was really just about like, what's, what do you guys, um, what do you envision for the future for the next steps for the black girl freedom fund for grant makers for girls of color? Like, I mean, as we continue to move into what I feel is a very hostile space in this country, like how do you guys combat that with the work you're doing? Cesar, you want to go first? I will because (laughs) I'm super excited about Black Girl Freedom Week, which is coming up in February, 2023. And it is all the joy. I mean, it's all the joy planning. It's all the joy getting the work done. This past Black Girl Freedom Week, we just had some really dope young people from across the country participate and just some really amazing Black women who supported us. Um, I'm looking forward to more people not just learning about the One Billion for Black Girls campaign, but joining us and being co-investors and telling us where they're releasing their dollars and if they need support and figuring out how and where to release their dollars to reach out to us to give direction. I'm looking forward to more of the narrative shift that gets to happen and more young people who are connected to the community being able to have the space to just like showcase their artistic innovation on just like all the levels. Um, this is where my joy comes out. I um, noticed. I see it. Talk about the you closing your eyes while you're talking. Like, <laughs> you're I'm in it. Listen, I'm so excited. And I'm also really looking forward to giving away more money. Like, <laughs> yeah. plain and simple. You know, we got another round that we'll be announcing some details about in the coming months. And really excited. You know, when those applications came in, it was a great learning experience from all of us to hear from mm. all these around the country who were doing work with Black girls and gender expansive youth, whether they were, you know, 
the the folks in a church who have been doing this for 20 plus years and this was the first way that they could get some outside money that wasn't being collected on Sundays. Right, right, right. The organizations that have been around for 25 years that are the 501c3 that have been doing the work, but you know, they've been overshadowed by other organizations mm-hmm. to to young folks who are running organizations. Like some of our grantee partners are folks who are 30 and younger who are really doing dope, amazing work for Black girls and gender expansive youth. Awesome. So I'm looking forward to see who So 30 is young folk now. Us. Okay, so you know what that means, right? We are old. I'm older. It's, oh, listen, either I'm yeah. older The or ER. The so, ER. Because you said young older. folk, I was like, oh, there's like 16-year-olds with nonprofits. <laughs> and it was like, they're 30. I was like, oh, You're right, right, right. You're older or right. dead. So be older. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm definitely excited about what we get to do in the future and how the campaign continues to grow. Yeah, me too. I I am. What excites me is the growing number of people who are coming in as co-investors with us here. Mm. When I I started here two just over two years ago, we had two investors and we have grown to you know, nearly 20 institutional co-investors to, you know, thousands of people who also are contributing to this particular fund um, in, in meaningful ways for them. And the excitement that we get from folks who understand what we're trying to do with the Black Girl Freedom Fund and how it's connected to the $1 billion for Black girls effort and what that can potentially mean for wellness in our communities, mm-hmm. um, is what fires me up. So mm-hmm. I think the future is about us understanding that this is what our ancestors are moving for us. This is what okay. our elders want to see for us. That when we talk about dreaming, you know, we are also talking about actions. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. We are talking about the fact that, you know, nobody gives like Black people, honestly. Right. And so when we think about all of the ways that our ancestors and elders have engaged in this broader practice of taking care of community, of demonstrating and showing love in their communities, that we can embody and institutionalize all of that and organize it in a way that allows for our young people to thrive. Ten years from now, I do not want to be sitting on some platform of any kind talking about the disproportionate harm that Black girls, femmes, and gender expansive youth are experiencing and the woeful underinvestment in their well-being. I want to be talking about the robust engagement, the the spirit of abundance that radically shifted how we understand what, how we understood what is possible and how we are moving and shaping whole new um, ecosystems that support our communities. And so knowing that there are people who understand that and who also see that vision is encouraging, but also, you know, deeply motivating and healing in a lot of ways. I'm with it. Well, I love the work you guys are doing and I do appreciate y'all even reaching out to me to be a part of the work you all are doing. And I would love for you to let the people know how they can be a part of the work you all are doing and how they can get more information about Black Girl Freedom Week and the the $1 billion Black Girl Wait, what is it? One billion dollar. One billion for Black girls. One billion and one billion for Black girls initiative, etc. So let it rip. All yeah, right. So, so folks can definitely follow us on social media. 
Um, we also have a website that's one, the number one billion, the number four black girls. So one billion four black girls.org. Um, and follow us on all of our handles at Black Girl Freedom Fund, Grant Makers for Girls of Color as well. Um, and don't just go to the post and like it. Like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but also, like, engage with us. We're a community of real people. Um, mm-hmm. And we want to make meaningful connections with folks. I love Ashe. it. And for Black Girl Freedom Fund, when would be the deadline to get involved? Oh, so we're going to be releasing details. I mean, sorry, about the um, Black Girl Freedom Week. Sorry. Black, Black Girl Freedom, Freedom Week. Week is February 13th through the 19th of 2023. But is, is so for, for Black Girl Freedom Week, to my understanding, it's a, it's a, it's a week long of events. It's a call to action. It's a. So there's no back. like deadline. Like if you want to oh, just no, be there for through. that, be there for that. Oh, be I, there for that. Come through. Come I mean, if people through. have like specific ideas about investments, they can reach out to us about that ahead of the week. Um, but come through. We'll be doing all the things through social media. So everyone with a phone or computer can have access to what we'll be up to throughout the week. All right. Well, thank you all so much and just always appreciative of the insight and just the passion you all bring in speaking about Black girls. And I'm honored to be a part of helping spread the word and change the narrative. That's right. Thank Thank you so much. much. A podcast network.